1: dot com
2: guest today, Dr. Shuri Tenpenny is respected as one of the country's most knowledgeable and outspoken physicians regarding the impact of vaccines on health. As a member of the prestigious National Speakers Association, Dr. Tenpenny is an outspoken advocate for free choice in healthcare, including the right to refuse vaccination. As an internationally known speaker, she is highly sought after. For her ability to present scientifically sound information regarding vaccination hazard and warnings that are rarely portrayed by conventional medicine. Most importantly, she offers hope through her unique treatments offered at Osteomed for those who have been vaccine-injured. Recently quoted, we have been programmed by the medical community and the media to believe that everyone, children and adults, will become sick, and likely die unless they are vaccinated. This explains why not vaccinating can be unfathomable to new parents who are unreasonably terrified of what were considered normal childhood illnesses only a few decades ago. Dr. Susan Tenpenny, Pat O'Brien, welcome to In Discussion today.
3: It's good to be with you, David.
4: Thank you, David. Thanks for having me.
2: Dr. Tenpenny, thank you again for joining me on In Discussion. We would like to talk to your work and, of course, sharing thoughts on the vaccination issues around which you have devoted many years of your life. Prior to discussing that area, may we focus for our listeners at your wider career and work from which we will then concentrate on the essence of the vaccinations arena?
4: Certainly. My background is, as a physician, as a medical doctor, I'm an osteopathic medical doctor, that I was board-certified in emergency medicine. I was the director of an emergency department in Ohio for 12 years. At about 1994, my business partner died of metastatic cancer, and he was only 32 years of age. So I decided at that point that there was something more to medicine than just patching people up in the emergency room after they have been broken and passing out medications. I moved my practice to Cleveland, and I started an office practice to do a combination of alternative and conventional medicine in 1996, which is where I'm located now in Cleveland. In September of 2000, I I got a, a brochure in the mail to go to the National Vaccine Information Center meeting in Washington, D.C., I really hadn't given a whole lot of thought to vaccination because I was not vaccinated as a child. I come from three generations of chiropractors where my father, my grandfather, three uncles, and two cousins were chiropractors. And most chiropractors, at least when I was growing up, were not big advocates of of vaccination. And I wasn't vaccinated, neither would any of my cousins. And we all had the measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, pertussis. We all had those childhood diseases. And I always kiddingly say, well, and here I am alive today to talk about it. At that time, so I went to the the National Vaccine Information Center meeting in September of 2000 and walked away going, My goodness, there's an enormous amount of information here that I don't think anybody really knows about. So I started to review the medical literature and I started with the CDC's paper, the General Recommendations of Vaccination, the 1998 version of that was a 42-page paper, and after I completed it, I said, you know, there is so much more to this. There has to be, because this, is a not, this paper wasn't written very well. It seems to be very bad science. It can't possibly be that we give children the same doses of these vaccines that we give adults. Maybe I ought to look into this a little further. Since that time, i 've invested more than ten thousand hours of personal time and in research into reading the cdc 's materials, the uh, pediatric infectious disease journals, GMA, all the board, all of the uh, peer reviewed medical literature, looking at the problems that have been well documented about the problems associated with vaccination. We are led to believe that vaccines are safe, effective, protect us, and are relatively harmless and that a one-size-fits-all vaccination uh, policy in the U.S. should be perfectly fine for everyone. And it's been my contention over the last 10 years that there's a whole other side to the story that needs to be uh, explained and told to people, and so that people get a, a fully informed opinion whether or not they want to be vaccinated or to have their children be vaccinated.
2: How does that position you in the medical community who I'm assuming support the vaccination procedures and programs, has that indeed isolated you in your work as a practitioner or are you accepted by the medical community, perhaps with some reservations in certain camps?
4: Well, David, I think that requires probably a three-part answer. Um, First of all, I don't spend a lot of time trying to convince the medical profession of something that they are absolutely sure they know everything about. And so it really requires someone who's open to saying, maybe there was something I didn't learn in medical school that I need to look at. Those doctors, I've, I've rarely met a physician who has actually done the work and spent the time looking at the medical literature and looking at something as simple as package inserts and understanding the uh, what's in vaccines that haven't suddenly said, you know what, I, I really have changed my mind. I was really sold a bill of good about how safe and effective these things are, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to operate my practice differently. So am I embraced by the conventional community? Uh, hardly. Um, Do I spend any time trying to make them embrace me? I really don't do that either. I really feel like an informed consent is all about the patient, and it's a personal right to refuse. And so I've spent the majority of my time creating a grassroots bottom-up movement of getting informed parents and informed adults about what's going on with vaccines, and then they can understand what happens when they make that choice.
2: Can we, with that, draw a line in the sand? and provide our listeners with a brief history of the evolution of vaccinations citing the real onset of their practical use in medicine. Perhaps we can cover in that review the polio outbreaks in the 1950s and the apparent success of vaccinations citing their validity traveling through to the acknowledgement that the policy of their application became quite redundant?
4: You know, it's interesting, David, whenever this conversation comes up, and particularly when it falls on ears for the first time, and it's the first time that people have even thought to even question vaccines, the two things that always come up are what about smallpox and what about polio? And in the DVDs and in the books that I've written, I spend a good deal of time going through all of that material because the Smallpox vaccine was developed by Jenner, as most people know historically, in around 1798. The first smallpox vaccines were given in the U.S. in 1800. It was in 1863 in the U.K. when a Parliament passed the first mandatory vaccination law, and keeping in mind that the only vaccine that we had at that time was smallpox. And so from 1863, 1865, around that time frame, is when um, doctors finally decided that they could possibly do something good for public health, and they they took away vaccination from nurse midwives and, and apothecaries and even surgeons and said, this is going to become ours. And that was in 1865, and in, um, that rolled forward into the U.S. until about 1902 or 1903 when Jacobson versus Massachusetts was passed through the U.S. Supreme Court and said that the right of the individual must be subjugated to the good of the whole and that the states have a right to require vaccination if they believe that the, uh, the benefit of the vaccine is greater than the risk to the individual. And so from the early 1900s, then all of the states in the U.S. started to develop their own vaccination laws. And that's why in the U.S., vaccination is a state issue and not a national issue. All of the, the, the rules in terms of exemptions and all that are done on a state-by-state issue, a, a level. That gets us up to about 1958 in the polio epidemic, and if you look at the vaccine uh, material and the information that's actually provided by the CDC, and you look at the many books that are written on the issues of polio, and you examine the data carefully, what you see is that there was a spike of increasing incidence of polio in the U.S. between 1954, 1952, and about 1956. Um, the first, po- Salk first Salk's first polio vaccine was released in 1954. And if you look at those charts and data, you see that the polio epidemic was way on its way down. The incident rate had dropped by more than 70% when the vaccine was instituted in the U.S. and then started to be used worldwide. To this day, uh, so, so, so the vaccine was given the credit for eliminating the polio epidemic, which had already peaked and was already starting to go away.
2: With that said, Dr. Tenpenny, do you consider that it would have been preferential to waive the use of vaccines and allow the polio to take its natural course uh, through the system? Or that perhaps as a supplemental effort it could have been seen as complementary in expediting the eradication of the problem? Or was the latter a measure just simply of overkill?
4: I believe it was a measure of overkill. And I can say that because the same thing was true for smallpox, that less than 10% of the global population was actually vaccinated against smallpox, even though it went away on its own in the late 1970s. And two of the head researchers from the CDC, Dr. Tom Mack, and to a certain degree Dr. H- D.A. Dr. Henderson, who were the main researchers for the smallpox eradication program, both of them have said that smallpox was on its way out it just would have taken a little bit longer and it was going away because of improved sanitation and hygiene. So I believe the same was tr- would have been true for polio. In fact, the only polio we still have today worldwide are in countries where we use the live virus oral polio vaccine instead of the injectable.
2: With this knowledge and history to draw from, what is the status of the procedures used across the board and in particular in the school system? By looking to your own background notes, influenza appears to be a good example to use as a reference point. And in this, are we seeing the same errors occurring as in recent years?
4: Well, I think that the angle, I would like to answer that from a little different perspective, in that the public health policy in this country is all about high vaccination rates, and low infection rates of what are called the vaccine-preventable diseases. That's the only, well, not the only, but that is the primary measure of public health in children, is do we have a greater than 90% uptake, greater than 90% vaccination rate, and have we been able to maintain keeping these, these infectious diseases in kids really low? And the trade-off for that, in my opinion, is all of these vaccines, We now have been, children now get 40 doses of 16 different vaccines by the time they start kindergarten. We have the sickest kids on the planet. We are way in terms of chronic illnesses, in asthma, allergies, eczema, ADD, ADHD, diabetes, cancer. And it's hard to imagine that at some level that isn't connected to this one-size-fits-all vaccination policy. So if we did away with vaccines, or we, we, we were more selective with our vaccination policies, or we didn't give children all these vaccines at the same time, would we see this chronic illness? And would we have a little bit more of measles, mumps, and rubella? We might. But when you've got, what is the trade-off there between these illnesses that in most children that are relatively healthy, those diseases are kind of rites of passage, they came and went. And if you look, ask for people like in my age group, I'm 52. And you talk to people somewhere between the ages of 45 and 80. We saw those illnesses and we had them. And the vast majority of us missed a week or so of school and life went on. And we ended up with lifetime immunity instead of artificial immunity from all the vaccinations.
2: So in other words, what you're saying is that it's breaking down the natural immune system rather than assisting it.
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Absolutely.
2: In the case of influenza, we have seen several crises over the past five years. Is this in itself reflecting a pattern of conditioning or manipulation um, which presents a system actually denying people access to information or education that would otherwise allow them to make decisions for their own well-being. Even in some cases, of course, not having the right to refuse vaccinations in some states. I believe that Arizona may lead parents in particular to believe that vaccinations are mandatory, but of course I may at the same time stand corrected on this uh, and on the actual rules that apply, but nevertheless parents certainly may be misled simply because of a lack of education or knowledge.
4: Well, that's actually not correct. Um, there are 19 states, 18 states in the union, 18 to 19, there's one that, depending on, on interpretation, but let's go with 18. There are 18 states in the union for kids for, that have what's called a philosophical exemption, which means that you as a parent... have have reviewed vaccination versus natural illness and you've decided that the risk of the disease is less than the risk of the vaccine and you want to refuse vaccination, then all you have to do is to write a simple letter or ask for a form from the school system and turn it in. And actually, Arizona is one of those states that has a philosophical exemption. And so there's 18 states where you absolutely have a very simple right to refuse to say, I'm philosophically opposed to this, and you fill out a form and give it to the schools. <clears throat> the reason is, is because the schools need to have on file either a completed vaccination record or an exemption form or a letter from the parent in the event that they get audited by the state health department. The schools rarely, if ever, tell parents that they have the choice of the exemption. All they do is they send home a letter that says, um, your kid's vaccination record isn't up to date. If you don't get it up to date, they're not allowed into school. They never tell people, they never tell parents the other side of that law. In 48 out of 50 states, there's a religious exemption. Now, some of those are a little more difficult to write than others, but you still have the right to to refuse based on your religious exemption of saying, I do not want these things injected into my temple of God, and I do believe that that is more harmful to me um, uh, in the outcome, and I want to exercise my right to refuse. The only two states that only have a medical exemption are West Virginia and Mississippi. All other 48 states do offer you a right to refuse if you understand your law.
2: In your world, do you see yourself as a maverick in attempting to affect change in this area? And in the many consultations you find yourself in, do you then consider that this sits in a human rights arena what course of action do you take if that is the case
4: yeah i guess i would call myself kind of a maverick and <laughs> i hadn't really had it positioned that way but um i believe that outside of the usual and customary what definitions of of, uh, what is normal and what is usual and what is accepted. Um, I believe that there's kind of like old Paul Harvey, page two, the rest of the story. There's usually another side that needs to be examined. So I actually fell into this whole thing about vaccination. It wasn't anything I went looking for. I don't have any vaccine injured children. I don't have an ax to grind in that area. I don't even have a vaccine injured relative. In fact, most of my relatives aren't vaccinated. When I started looking at it, it was really about education and information, about the fact that nobody knows, nobody takes the time to look at all the injuries that are caused by this, all of the elements of what's in the vaccines. Um, In 1986, the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Act was passed, and it was signed into law by uh, then-President Ronald Reagan, that injury compensation program understands that that some people can be terribly injured by vaccines or can be killed. And to date, that program has given almost $2 billion out in injury compensation claims to people who have been horribly injured by vaccines. And the other part of that is only about 25% of people who've applied for compensation have actually uh, been awarded compensation. So there's many more people who have been injured that the, that the uh, court did not rule in their favor.
2: Turning to Pat O'Brien uh, for a moment, as a Vietnam veteran, were you taken through a procedure of routine vaccinations that looking back now in retrospect may have offered any feelings of reluctance at that time?
3: No, I was one of the sheeple. You know, you just get in a line and they tell you you have to take the shot, so you do it. But I have, in my own personal life, I've stayed away from vaccinations and in most cases, I've missed the flu. That's why... I felt that um, it was important to bring Dr. Tenpenny to your show from the standpoint that people don't realize the damage that many of these vaccinations and um, flu shots have done with so many people. To me, it is more of a uh, driving force for big pharma than it is the reality of uh, the way life is.
2: Would you be in agreement with that, Dr. Tenpenny?
4: Absolutely. Um, There are currently eight different flu shots that have been manufactured and on the market. All eight of them have different ingredients. They have different side effect profile risks. And several of them have different types of contraindications. Um, Doctors don't take the time to sort those out. I honestly believe it's my opinion that they think that one flu shot is just about the same as another and they aren't. Um, The other thing is that when all of the analysis has been done by an organization called the Cochrane Collaboration, which is an investigative think tank that does silo investigations on a topic, and when they've looked at all of the studies, all of the uh, papers that have been published on the flu shot in three different age groups, pediatric, middle-aged adults, and senior citizens... What they find is that there is no evidence that flu shots are any more effective than a, than a placebo, than a sugar pill, or getting a shot of water, in preventing people from getting uh, from getting the flu. And the head researcher of that program, Dr. Thomas Jefferson, actually was quoted in the New York Times a couple of years ago when he said that, <coughs> pardon me, the runaway. effectiveness that's touted by flu shot proponents is nowhere to be seen. When you investigate the science and you look at the research, what you see is that marketing rules in response to influenza vaccines and science and evidence comes in fourth or fifth.
2: So we see that people in the United States and in many states are negligent clearly in that while it may not be compulsory, they are still compromised unknowingly by a lack of education and the private health system the latter of which will more likely penalize them for refusing the necessary or required inoculations and of course in the case of children uh, PPOs and or HMOs may have the right to deny them proper coverage citing illness arising from that decision?
4: You know that's interesting question David and it's and we're seeing things like that start to crop up and be peppered into the medical literature now because there's such a big push for vaccinating everyone with every vaccine and the premise they start with is that all vaccines are safe they are safe and we just move on from there I'm starting to hear reports back from people, things like I got this strange call from my health insurance company that they wanted to know whether or not my children were vaccinated. I've gotten calls from traveling nurses who've said that if they don't ha- aren't fully vaccinated, that the health insurance is going to drop coverage for their children um, because their parent isn't vaccinated. Um, I know that there's a big push with this new health care reform law, um, was actually published in uh, the the Pediatric Newsletter a couple of weeks ago, the American Association of Pediatric News, that said we want to figure out the best way to use this new health care insurance in order to make sure that everyone is vaccinated. So even though they haven't come out and said that directly, I believe that it's like a thundercloud on the horizon. There's some bubblings coming up from that of trying to make every vaccine mandatory for everyone in exchange for health insurance.
2: So this word, manipulation could be well appointed here. What are the long-term effects for the younger generation, the recipients of so many inoculations? Is there a marked increase in mental performance deficiencies, which now had to be examined as the resultant conditions arising out of this Overuse of inoculation programs, so that perhaps we can provide solutions for people in ten or twenty years' time.
4: Absolutely, I mean when you see the the current health status of children, of the asthma, allergies, ADD, ADHD, and et cetera, et cetera. A lot of that, I believe, is contributed to the vast number of vaccines they're getting and the ingredients that are in there. I mean, like all of the flu shots have formaldehyde. Um, there is gelatin in many of the in the flu shots and in many other of the vaccines, and gelatins can cause the gelatin is known to cause anaphylactic reactions, which is systemic shock. Um, there are allergic there have been documented allergic cross reactions from gelatin that is in the vaccine to allergies and asthma and to food allergies and the massive amount of food allergies that we're having. In fact, it's my premise. It's, it's, it, well, before I say that, there has never been a study that's been done, never been a study done of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children and to look at what their current health status is. And some of those things would be fairly simple to do. You could get a matched population of vaccinated versus unvaccinated children and ask simple questions like, Um, How many medications are the vaccinated children on versus the unvaccinated? How many missed days of school? How many antibiotics per year do the vaccinated kids get versus the unvaccinated uh, kids? There could be some fairly good uh, research done with um, identifiable endpoints to be able to compare the health of vaccinated versus unvaccinated kids. We've been asking for this research to be done for the last 10 years. The CDC completely avoids it and it's my opinion that they avoid it is because they do not want to know the outcome. They don't want to know the answer to that.
2: There's also been a marked increase in autism. Would you say in your opinion that this has been due to the use of vaccines over the years?
4: I do and I don't believe it's any one vaccine. I believe that it's the cumulative effect of the large number of vaccines that children get. I mean, by the time they are uh, one year of age to where they will start to get um, the MMR and um, to get the MMR and the uh, chickenpox vaccine, I mean, they've already had multiple different vaccines to affect their immune system. I mean, they've, by the time they are six months, of, uh, one year of age, they will have had the equivalent of 69 vaccine antigens and about 20 shots before they get to one year of age when they get the MMR and the chickenpox, so... I believe it's the. No, they've also never done any research on the additive effects of all these doses, the cumulative effects of all of the chemicals, aluminum, and, and to this day even mercury that's in the vaccines. And it's really hard for me, David, as a physician, that when I look at these, when I look at these completed vaccination records, and you see how many kids, uh, vaccines that these kids have gotten. How anyone, whether it be a a layperson or anyone in the in the healthcare industry, can look at these records and think that these things are harmless, I, I really it's really beyond me. I, I really I really struggle with that.
2: Pat O'Brien, you may have a question in this area for Doctor Tenpenny.
3: Isn't that similar to what's going on with antibiotics? I'm a Mercer survivor, and when I first went into the hospital. It was found that I had just a bad staph infection. However, I was, my roommate actually had MRSA. And the three days that I spent in the room with him, I picked up the MRSA. And the end game, from what I understand, was it was an overuse of antibiotics that really caused me to get the MRSA.
2: Dr. Tenpenny, is that issue raised by? pad o'brien a combination of that and indeed the conditions of the hospital wards themselves that has been a a great area of controversy in the uk in recent years where so many diseases have been picked up by patients whether as an outpatient or long term essentially in that all the factors mentioned, ultimately breaking down the body's immune system.
4: Well, it's it's yeah. The, there's two parts to there's two answers to to your question, which is a really good point to bring up, Pat. Is that um, the overuse of antibiotics does have a very adverse effect on not only the individual but also the community. Um, most doctors are not familiar with probiotics or even or prebiotics. The probiotics are the good bacteria that are in your intestinal tract that are your number one defense against um, foreign invaders. And when you take antibiotics, they uh, they kill the good guys and the bad guys. So they get rid of the things that are causing you to have a serious infection like strep or meningitis, but they also kill off the good bacteria that's in your gut. And rarely is that replaced by uh, conventional doctors to replace those good guys in your intestinal tract to build back up your immunity and your resistance to microbes out in the, in the universe. The hospitals have become a rather a cesspool of, of chronic infections and of, of resistant bacteria and probably more of the superbugs are coming from being in this place where you've already got immunocompromised people and you're using more and more drugs because it's not just the antibiotics that suppress your immune system, it's a whole litany of other types of pharmaceuticals also. I also think that we're seeing more aggressive type infections because of the vaccination program. The CDC's own material, it says right off of their website that because we started using the, uh, the Hib vaccination to eliminate Haemophilus influenza B, which is a gram-negative type of bacteria, they started using that in 1991. When we started removing that particular strain of bacteria, we got a big up, up click on the amount of strep that was in a strep bacteria that was causing problems. And so then they developed the next vaccine, which was Prevnar, to eliminate strep. And now that we've eliminated uh, seven strains of strep, the stronger strains of strep are coming. So now we're having a 13-strain vaccine. And because we've eliminated the H-flu and all of these strep, now we're seeing this great big increase in Neisseria meningitis. And we're now having a vaccine for Neisseria meningitis. And what are we ending up with? MRSA, a staph infection that is resistant to everything.
2: Could we, for a brief while, discuss the chemical makeup in these many inoculations that may indeed have led to a sharp increase in autism as just one example of their after effects is mercury aluminum uh, two of the many chemicals uh, that are acting as a poison
4: well it's not just the mercury. Mercury is out of most of the vaccines. They still use trace they still use it in the manufacturing process and then somehow magically they pull it out. So many of the vaccines still contain traces of mercury. The multi dose flu shots still have full doses of mercury. They still have twenty five micrograms per dose. But it's not just the mercury. When the, flu, when the manufacturers were told in 2001 to start removing the mercury from the vaccines, which wasn't completed until 2004, they, they, were all, they, they added in more and more and more aluminum, which is also a neurotoxin, and there are other types of chemicals such as formaldehyde that, that is a known carcinogen, and many of, the flu vac- many of the vaccines still have latex in the rubber stopper, which can cause anaphylactic shock. So we've gotten, vaccine industry has has gotten a lot of focus about the mercury over the last five to seven years, but it's not just the mercury causing the problems.
2: Returning to autism and the long-term after effects, as well as other side effects attributable to inoculations, is there any watchdog or regulatory body That is, taking the position of accountability or responsibility in assuring that the pharmaceutical industry does not act in the same way as consumer business in constantly updating and revising products for long-term revenue sustainability?
4: From in of the industry, like from, from in, not that I'm aware of, inside of the industry, the the ones that are the watchdog groups are like Age of Autism and Autism Speaks and and the National Autism Association, which are parent-run grassroots organizations trying to get to the bottom of this. But not a watchdog industry in terms of the government. It's almost as though they don't want to help these children. It's almost you know I've I've used this analogy a lot um, is that. If we had an epidemic of children suddenly, inexplicably going blind, we would have this huge uproar. We would be trying to figure out why these kids went blind. We wouldn't just be saying, oh, I guess we need more seeing-eye og- seeing dogs. But we've got an epidemic of tens of thousands of children losing their brains, and nobody seems to be paying attention.
2: Well, surely that is indicative of a society and area in this case of medicine without regulation, there appears to be more regulatory control in the United Kingdom than in the United States. Do you foresee a replication of a more useful and responsible mechanism being developed in the next decade simply out of the need to satisfy these deficiencies that have led sadly to the increase in autism and other problems arising from this mismanaged and deregulated system
4: well, you would hope so, but I don't think that's a possibility i I mean I'm not hopeful for that happening
2: Pat O'Brien, what is your position on this point?
3: I recently planned a uh, trip to Haiti and I consulted with Dr. Tenpenny, I had gone to the CDC website and under there, because I was concerned about the possible disease down there, and I noticed that there were shots that were recommended to uh, take before you go out of the country. And um, I consulted with Dr. Tenpenny, and she advised me that it's recommended not necessary. And that's something I think uh, people that travel a lot need to realize as well, that you've got to make that decision when you travel, whether or not you want to make those um, uh, commitments to a vaccine.
2: Dr. Tenpenny, where do you sit in the position here with travel vaccines?
4: Well, it's interesting because travel vaccines as a whole are recommended, they are not required. There's only one travel vaccine that is required and only in certain countries around the world, and that's the yellow fever vaccine. And if you're allergic to eggs or um, uh, severely allergic to eggs or if you've got other types of health care problems, there is a way that you can get an exemption for that. But other than that vaccine, all of the rest of the vaccines that are available are all recommended. They are not required. And I always like to say to people that I've had the – the good blessing in my life to have had the opportunity to have traveled to, 40, to 58 different countries. I've never been required to get a vaccine. I've never been asked to, re- to review a vaccination record going in or out of the country. And if there was a country where I was required to get vaccines, I simply wouldn't go.
2: Dr. Tenpenny, as the visibility of these issues becomes clearer an education becomes ever more commonplace. Do you believe that people will look increasingly to holistic alternatives in the future?
4: I absolutely do. And interestingly enough, when I started at the top of the hour and talking about the... um mandatory vaccination laws that started in the U.K. in 1863, at that same time, there was an alternative medicine movement that was started in the U.K. during that time. And the name of that group was called Our Babies Battle. And they were parents and nurse midwives who had had horrible tragedies happen when their children were vaccinated with the smallpox vaccine. And they always advocated no vaccines, natural living, good hygiene, eat better, sleep, sleep, more water, get to bed on time, get exercise. So the alternative medicine movement, so to speak, kind of had its bedrock in the uh, origins of the vaccination movement back in 1863. And I think that more and more parents today are are understanding that if I, I have a lot of control over keeping my child healthy... I can monitor what they eat, make them go to bed on time, get exercise, plenty of water, take vitamins, try to eat as much organic as possible, wash their hands, et cetera. That is, and, and that is not anything an industry can make, uh, turn into a $5 billion a year industry like the drug companies. So they understand they have control over the environment and over the food to keeping their children healthy, and they have zero control over the outcome of a vaccine which could be from nothing to a sore arm to a horrible reaction to death. And they have no way of knowing. It's a total Russian roulette. Knowing, there's no way of knowing ahead of time what the outcome of that shot may be. So as parents become more and more informed, I think they're making better choices.
2: With all that said, Dr. Tenpenny, would it be accurate to say that the degrading social issues including family breakdown, toxicity in relationships, and of course more harsh relations between parents and children, is due to this system that has evolved since the 1950s, which of course is further convoluted as generations take on further compounding burdens. As the paradigm grows stronger, and with more severity?
4: I, I would have to say that based on all the research I've done and my personal and professional opinion would be yes, these vaccines cause a lot of neurotoxicity, a lot of brain inflammation. Um, some of the chemicals that are in there cause horrible disruptions to what's happening to brains of, of young and growing children. And then they get put on Ritalin and Adderall and and then they get put on antidepressants and antipsychotics and it's just like trying to put a lid on a boiling pot of something that was caused. In fact, it's been my opinion that if... if if we removed the vaccination industry or we greatly restricted it, that the health of our entire society would improve. And if people did something as simple as got a 25 hydroxy vitamin D level every year during the flu season and they had their vitamin D levels up between 60 and 80, the incidence of flu would go down and we wouldn't even need to have flu shots. So I think there's so much more that we can do on the health side of the equation that um, vaccines have caused more, in my opinion, they're causing more harm than good.
2: Again, just to reinforce this point, what is the way in which this has indeed been exasperated by parents in the 60s, the boomer generation, where their children have inherited this conditioning? And of course a sad legacy for those parents to see their children become the recipients of this system, which has created a further compounding effect
4: oh i I think that you described it beautifully i think that it is an additive effect and then you look at the vaccines and then you look at the changes in our food and you look at the more chemicals and pesticides and things in the environment and you look at just we've got much more um, electromagnetic radiation in the air from all the cell phones, and we get much less exercise than we used to, and we spend more time inside. I mean, I think that many times when I do an assessment on patients in my office in Cleveland, Ohio, I will just imagine having a pie diagram um, imp- embedded, on the, like, on their chest. And each one of those things that we just described are a piece of the pie and I don't think that any one of them, and this is why that the industry says that it's not all of these things because in each person, though that slice of the pie could be a different amount. For example, in, in people that are vaccinated, some of their health issues, the vaccine piece might be one or 2%. But in other people, that vaccine piece might be 70%. It may have caused them to have seizures as soon as they got the shot and they then they have a seizure disorder. So I think that that... that Goes back to the, indi- the um, individualization of healthcare and, and the individual genetics. And, and I think it's all additive. It's an all additive effect.
2: Dr. Tenpenny, I've been working for many months now on the oil spill crisis in the Gulf of Mexico and with the support of Pat O'Brien. And over many hours of discussion, I believe that we have both agreed and concluded that it's a joint responsibility where pointing fingers is futile. It's a question, I think, of everybody in society taking accountability. In that case, and of course in the area in which you devote your life, how can people and especially mothers, better educate themselves to ensure that this system is dismantled so that the pharmaceutical industry can no longer operate through the manipulation of people.
4: Well, I, I think I have a bit of a personal bias on that. I've written two books on, on vaccines. One is called Saying No to Vaccines. It's a resource guide for all ages. And the subtot- topic of the book is Refuting the 25 Most Common Reasons People Say You Should Vaccinate. So there's 25 reasons there that people say they're safe, effective, if we don't vaccinate, we'll have epidemics, you know, what about polio, what about smallpox, all of those things. And people can go down the table of contents and, and pick the argument that they're trying to refute and understand from the medical literature why they have a reason to say no. So I, and the, the, two, the DVDs that I've done, I just released a DVD on flu and the flu shot, I have two other DVDs called On Vaccine Basics. One is called The Risk-Benefit Choices. There, I believe that knowledge is power. And if you have the knowledge and the information in your hands to see that there's another side to the story and there's other ways that I can keep myself and my family healthy, then you can start to make informed choices and, and go to the other direction of just having this one-size-fits-all and having all of these medications, which they are, injected into your body.
2: Pat O'Brien, looking back over your own life and, of course, the time in Vietnam, how do you feel after the post-traumatic years that you had to deal with and the episodes of Mercer and other ailments that traveled your way?
5: I know... um... If I had to do it all over again, I, I wouldn't have taken a vaccine or an antibiotic and let, uh, let my own body uh, fight um, the many things that are out there. Um, as you know, David, I've dealt in the, the business of, of microbes, uh, viruses, and bacteria in a, in a different life um, and cleaning those up and have done a lot of study over the last 10 years myself um, with C. diff and MRSA and the many, uh, molds, uh, the black mold and so on. And I, I think what we've, what we've been allowed the medical community to do is break down our immune systems rather than allowing our immune systems to build up. Years ago, when I was young, we didn't, my mom didn't run me to the doctor every time I had a sniffle for, um, a antibiotic, thank God, um, and I I think that there is just an overuse of drugs in general um, that are not natural to our own body's way that we were made in a way that we could resist many of these uh, these problems, and yet. Uh, we're not taking advantage uh, or allowing our children to take advantage of building up an immune system. By the time you get to the age of, of 60 plus, um, the, just a, a, a trip to the hospital for a broken arm can result in a disease that will kill you. And you're not immune to it if you've taken all of these drugs and, and vaccines that, that are on the market. Uh, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have touched one if I, I'd known what I know now, but you know hindsight's
2: twenty twenty. Doctor Tenpenny, as we close towards the end of the program, and as you advance in your life and work, what are your greatest aspirations? How do you hope that your work will change the ways in which your patients approach medical issues, including in that parents and children, of course. Ultimately towards changing the paradigm in our manipulated system today.
4: Well, I think through my website, which is DrTenpenny.com and all of the articles and things that I've that I've written and published and DVDs and more that's on the way, that there's a lot of free information there to, to so that knowledge can be power. And my goal is to decrease vaccination by as much as possible, because I really think that there are so many other ways to stay healthy. in fact, i I would be so radical and be such a maverick to say that I don't think that the industry is necessary and that there are many we, it's, it's, a, it's a, uh, a procedure that it, that time has come for it to go away, and sadly enough, the pharmaceutical industry is is building up and having more and more and more vaccines in the pipeline. So it's my goal and my vision to have a empowered population that people can make informed decisions on staying healthy without using vaccines in their life.
2: Dr. Tenpenny, I think that you have been awarded with the title of Maverick today, and I hope that you're happy with that. It's been a great privilege talking to you today, also to you, Pat O'Brien. I wish you both well in the future and certainly hope, uh, Dr. Tenpenny, that you will return to in discussion with us in the future.
4: Thank you so much. It's been delightful. Thank you very much for the opportunity. You take care.
2: And for our listeners today, I hope that you have enjoyed this program as much as I. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening.